coronavirus has set a new normal in literally everything. It's been a time of record numbers of people working from home, of volatility in markets, of economic shutdown, and unemployment. These times have tested the systems that we all rely on to work, to live, and that power the financial markets and the economy. But there have been a few bright spots. Though there's no question that we're in a downturn, at least for now, there has been record growth in sustainable investing. So what's been behind that? Why has it been the case that while most numbers have been flashing red, so-called green investing is just getting bigger? Today, I talked to Salim Ramji, the global head of iShares and Index Investments, a $2 trillion business, about why that's the case. We'll talk about what he's learned in this historic time and how ETFs have fared during the tests of these market swings. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Salim, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Delighted to be here, MC. Right, here in our respective virtual offices. Exactly. As that indicates, it's been a totally unprecedented start to the year. And in just the past few months, the entire structure of our professional and personal lives has changed. And that's been the case for all of our colleagues all over the world. So just to start with the obvious, what has this meant for you and for the iShares business? Well, look, for me, like for you, for everybody, it's been a pretty surreal past couple of months. Personally, the good thing is I'm at home, I'm safe, I'm with my family, And relative to what many communities, including here in New York, all around the world are going through, weird though it is, we're in a good position. Even while there's been this humanitarian crisis essentially going on all around the world, it's been some of the most intense periods for iShares as a whole over the past three or four weeks or the past kind of month and a half or so. It seems like it's been a time that's really tested ETFs and certainly has created a lot of conditions that many had speculated about how the ETFs would hold up during times like the ones we've just lived through. So what were some of the major lessons from your perspective? Well, first, just to give context, it really has been, I'd say the past month and a half or so have been the most intense stresses for the ETF category and the index category in part because of the market volatility, in part because of things that have happened in terms of market structures, like these circuit breakers on the New York Stock Exchange came into effect four times. They haven't come into effect before. And in part because there were just so many markets that were dislocated and people were looking to the ETF to really provide liquidity, provide price discovery, provide access, and really be able to get their money back when they wanted their money back. And that was all in a period of time where all of us, all of our partners were all working from home. And so the encouraging thing coming out of all of this is that in this most extreme test that we've ever gone through, iShares did exactly what they were supposed to do. They tracked the market. They provided price discovery. They provided access to markets for investors all over the world. And the thing that is a real positive is that we continue to keep our promises to our clients. There were 
moments or days when there was a lot of concern about illiquidity in the market and that markets might not really, frankly, work in some ways, as was particularly important in times of volatility. Were there liquidity concerns with ETFs and how did that end up playing out? Yeah, some of the liquidity issues were most acute in the bond market. And the bond market relative to the equity market is pretty antiquated in how it operates. It's pretty opaque. It's not generally done on exchange. It's done over the counter. So it's just negotiated. And the ability to really find liquidity is its own kind of mix of art and science. And I think that the thing that ETFs did, because of the characteristics they have, they're on exchange, they're fully transparent, and they're very liquid, meant that investors were able to get a real sense of what the true pricing was in the bond market at periods in which that wasn't totally clear. And I think in doing so, they added a service not just to the investors, but they added a service to the market themselves, where these became instruments of modernization within the bond market itself. Given that that was a unique test, ETFs hadn't been this volume in previous crises, do you think there are any policy or market structure implications coming out of this period that would make sense to be more broadly adopted or considered? You know, probably. Look, this isn't over. Right. We've come through the past six weeks, and in the past six weeks, things have worked, but both in the world economy and in the markets themselves, this was a test, but this was a first test of 2020. I doubt it's going to be the only one. Mm -hmm. I think there will be some look at policies, but I think the thing that, again, was really encouraging is when you look at the policies that were put in place post-2015 around market structure which led to a lot of the market-wide circuit breakers being activated four times in the month of March, which they'd never been activated under these new rules. So if markets were opening up outside of certain boundaries, so down more than 5%, down more than 7%, that what would happen is that there would be a temporary halt to the trading for a period of 15 minutes so that the market didn't get overly volatile or overly out of whack as a result of trading happening that was well outside the bands of normal or even in some cases erroneous trading. Mm -hmm. The last time they were activated was in 1997 under an old set of rules, and it worked. Hmm. And so I think that was effective policy coming into action. Doesn't mean there won't be more and doesn't mean there won't be different stresses that we discover, but at least this was a good example of a series of policy changes enacted four or five years ago that really worked and benefited markets and benefited investors as a result. So as we've been talking about, this is an extremely unusual time, but are there some longer term trends that you've been seeing playing out, trends that you think will last beyond this period? Well, look, we've seen different periods of volatility over the past 10, 12 years, including the financial crisis itself a dozen years ago. And in each period of volatility, it's been a positive motivator towards ETFs. If I can give you a couple of examples just from the first part of this year, that what we're seeing is, first of all, we're seeing greater movements towards investors moving towards model portfolios. They're more diversified. They're often simpler. They're often cheaper. And over the long term, they tend to perform better than the collection of individual securities and mutual funds and things that investors have collected over the years. And we really saw in the first quarter, especially during the periods of market volatility that kicked in around February and March, more investors moving towards a model-based portfolio or a total portfolio approach. 
I think that's certainly a trend that's been around for a while, but I expect that's going to accelerate. And I think the second piece has been around the growth and access of sustainable investing. Sustainable investing for us within iShares this past quarter, it was a record quarter. We raised $10 billion in sustainable ETFs. And just a year ago, we were managing only $20 billion, and now we're managing $40 billion across our ETF and index mutual fund range. This quarter was a record quarter for us, but even through the month of April, we've now raised more in sustainable ETFs and index funds than we raised in all of last year, and last year was a record year for us. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's also some unlocking that's happening, that as a result of this volatility, People now have lower capital gains, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, because they have lower returns, but it's enabling them to move to different asset classes that they've wanted to move to. And I think there's real pent-up demand for sustainable investing, which is why you're starting to see the greater movement towards flows. And I think the other piece around it is that sustainable investments tend to have more of a bias towards profitable companies, more of a bias towards companies with less leverage more of a bias towards companies that, by their nature, are much more long-term focused. And I think there's also increased appetite, especially in this environment that we're in, towards more investments that exhibit those attributes. And we started the year, of course, at BlackRock, saying that sustainability was going to become our new standard. So in some senses, some of those trends and drivers were anticipated or were evident. But the fact that they persisted during that period of volatility may be surprising, although the reasons you gave of unlocking opportunity and the potential to take advantage of lower capital gains certainly make sense. But do you think there's anything about the events of the past six weeks that influenced how investors perceive sustainable investing? Or really, this is a matter of timing for a trend whose time had come? I think it's kind of the second point. I think it's a trend that had had a lot of pent-up demand. I wouldn't over- interpret the past six weeks, because I think these things take months and years to really play out in terms of investor sentiment. Mm -hmm. But I do think two really important things have shifted. And it's not just over the past three months, but it's really looking back over the past year or two. The first is that there is real pent-up demand amongst investors all over the world, from individual investors to institutional investors to everybody in between, for sustainable investments. And I think you're seeing it in our flows from last year. You're seeing it in our flows from the first quarter. I expect you'll continue to see it in the years ahead. But I think that that's been a change in investor sentiment that's been building for some time. Some of it is based on values and people's views of the world. But a lot more of it is starting to be just based on value and people's understanding that many of the risks within ESG, particularly climate risk, is a risk just like any other investment risk. Mm -hmm. And just as you can't ignore certain categories of investment risk, you can't ignore ESG risks. You need to build them into your process and how you think about investing. And what incentives is that creating for companies? I mean, if there's now significant capital flows flowing into those companies that are classified by certain sustainable behaviors, is it at a volume that it's really creating any incentives for firms? And what does it mean for those that sort of fall behind? There's a virtuous circle happening, MC. One piece of it is that more investors want access to sustainable investing, not just a niche. And, you know, sustainable investing has been around for a long time, but it historically had been a very small niche of investors. 
And now it's becoming a more, hopefully, much more mainstream way in which investors look to deploy their money. I think the second point, which you raised just now, is that that's providing greater incentive for companies to disclose. And it's remarkable, just even in the past several years, you know, back in like 2011, less than 20% of S&P 500 companies disclosed aspects about their sustainability and their ESG risks. Mm -hmm. Today, that number is 80%. Wow. And with that, there's now a greater lens for investors to really be able to understand what types of ESG risks are companies taking. And that creates its own circle because then companies that are good at thinking about governance, good at thinking about the social impact of their business, good at thinking about the environmental impact of their business, are able to make these disclosures. And investors who seek that are then able to identify them in a way that they weren't otherwise able to identify it. And so I think that creates a virtual circle, which really matches investor appetite with companies that exhibit those characteristics. That makes a lot of sense as the data is getting better, the access can increase and so it creates that virtuous cycle. One thing though you also mentioned is that it's not as though sustainable investing is new. It's been around for a long time, but just as a more of a niche strategy, largely active managers, not as much index products. So part of what's happened now is that really index products have been taking off so much more dramatically than other products in sustainable investing. Why has that been the case? What are the characteristics that have sort of led to that growth? It's really fascinating and I think really exciting because I think the biggest part within sustainable investing from a growth point of view, in my opinion, is that it's ripe for indexation. And if you think about what indexation is at the core, whether you're talking about sustainable investing or any other kind of investing, it's just automating the investment process. It's doing it in a way which is transparent, which is rules-based, and which is investable. And ETFs are really the most convenient application of this automation. But sustainable investing was kind of the area that, I don't think it's the area that indexing forgot. It was just its own niche. And the level of index penetration in sustainable investments was like less than 7%, even five years ago, where in other more mature markets, it was like 40 or 50%. And so there's just a huge gap in terms of the level of index penetration in sustainable investing. And I think one of the things that's really exciting for investors, back to this point about pent-up demand, is that the other thing that index investing, and particularly ETFs do, is it makes investing far more accessible. And so what's now happening is that investors of all types want access to sustainable investing. Data and disclosure is getting better. So now you have an ESG index that you can invest in, which is far better because of disclosures and because of the analytics being applied to it. You can offer these at a far cheaper price, and you can offer a huge amount of choice because it's relatively efficient to wrap something in an ETF. And I think if anything is going to be growing the market for sustainable investing, I think indexation is going to be a really powerful force. I mean, even under our own projections, the total market of index funds and ETFs that are oriented towards sustainable investing are just over $200 billion today. We expect before the decade's out, that's going to grow by more than a trillion dollars. Wow. What it's really doing, back to the reference of making sustainability a standard, is it's really making it mainstream 
And it's really providing access to millions and millions of investors who want to invest in this way, the ability to do so. This may sound like an obvious question, but why is choice so important? Can't you provide access because of price, access because of awareness, and a certain range of choice? But why dozens and dozens of different options? Is it because there are different definitions of what sustainable means? Is it because some come at it with a risk approach versus like a more values-oriented approach? Yeah, I think choice is really important because every investor has a different starting point and a different need for sustainable investing. Some investors are very purist about what they want in an ESG index, and those will only invest in companies that exhibit the best ESG characteristics defined by a set of transparent rules. But other investors, they want to improve their ESG scores, but they still either by obligation, maybe a contractual obligation that may be in their investment policy statement, they still need to track a market cap weighted index, things that will invest in companies that exhibit better ESG scores, but still seek to track pretty closely to a market cap weighted index. And there are other investors still that are perhaps much more values-based and just want to screen out certain sectors or certain types of companies that are inconsistent with their values. Mm -hmm. Our own goal is to have about 150 ETFs and index funds over the next couple of years. I don't think we intend to have thousands, but 150 seems to us to be able to get the right level of choice, recognizing that there are different segments of investors there may be a popular misconception that sustainable investing is a matter of personal choice of individual values. And you, of course, reference that that is the case for some investors. But I'm also curious to what extent you think there's like a generational dynamic here. Is that one of the longer term drivers of demand for sustainable investing as we see transfer of wealth from you know baby boomers to Generation X and millennials? Or is that kind of just a popular misconception and not a critical driver in reality? I'd say it's a critical driver. I don't think it's the only one. I think that there's even beyond the generational shifts, which are clear, and there are as much societal shifts as anything. I think they're just shifts in how people think about this as a risk. Hmm. I think some of it is people's attitude and values, and there certainly are segments of demand. But I think that the thing that's going to mainstream sustainable investing are two powerful forces working together. One is the recognition that climate risk is an investment risk. And from a fiduciary point of view, thinking about climate risk as an investment risk has very profound implications for how we think about investing in ESG and ESG risks. But I would say an equally important force is the force of indexing being brought to sustainable investing. And I'd say it's equally important because what it's really doing is that it's increasing access to different segments of the population that might not have had it because they might have lacked the choice or because they might not have wanted to pay so much for active investing or because they wanted a way in a convenient way, like an ETF, in which to get access to this investing category. And so what does all this growth of indexing and sustainable investing mean for active? You know, in other categories, we've seen that it's put pressure on fees and active management sometimes challenge the value proposition. It's maybe particularly interesting here because sustainable investing was so long, this sort of niche category of choosing companies with limited data as to whether they had, quote, sustainable behaviors or not. So what do you think will happen going forward, whether we'll see as much demand for 
active sustainable investing strategies? Yeah, I'd say that there are two things. One of them is that you'll start to see, and I think we already are seeing, many more sustainable investing activities in the realm of private markets. Mm-hmm. If you think about things like infrastructure, or if you think about things like renewable power, those are both examples of things that are looking at long-term investment opportunities and the ability to invest through private markets in long-term investment opportunities actually works quite well together. I think if you think of the traditional liquid active management, I think the firms that will be successful, looking at this as another risk factor, will yield positive long-term outcomes. And I think the other piece is that there's going to be a significant reallocation of capital from non-sustainable to sustainable investments. Mm -hmm. And I think one other place in which active investors can outperform is by getting ahead and seeing ahead to where those reallocations of capital will take place. But I think the final piece is just across other places where indexation has been brought, it's also required existing incumbents to up their game. Mm-hmm. Because I think that indexation provides transparency and lower fees and convenience. And for managers that are able to move towards private markets, for managers that are able to integrate ESG into their investment process, for managers that are able to stay ahead of the reallocation of capital, they will be able to grow alongside the growth in sustainable investing. But for those who are doing things that can be easily replicated for a fifth of the cost by an iShare, yeah, it's a problem. But I'd say that's good for investors and it's good for the efficiency of the market. So that's just an example of automation and convenience being brought to this particular part of the market. Mm -hmm. And so in three years, five years, where do you think sustainable investing, how does it look different than it looks today? Is it just investing or what do you think? Well, I think one way in which it's going to be very different is that indexation is going to be a much more powerful force within sustainable investing. It's this kind of trillion dollars of new assets that we see coming into sustainable indexing. It's one important way of mainstreaming, but I think it's also going to have profound effects to how sustainable investing across the board is done, just as this has had profound effects in other markets where indexation has grown. I think the big difference here, by our own projections, we expect it's going to take seven or eight years to do what's taken 20 or 30 years in other markets because the demand for sustainable investing is so great and the opportunities for indexation within sustainable are so great. So you're going to see an acceleration of those forces happening. And I think that that's going to have some pretty profound shifts and changes in how sustainable investing across the board, whether it's through active or through indexation, is going to be done. One last question, and we've been asking the same question throughout this series of everyone who's joined. So much we talked about today, industry trends, dynamics you're seeing as a leader of iShares business, all solidly in the category of professional observations on sustainable investing. But I'm curious for you personally, was there a moment that changed how you thought about sustainable investing or sustainability? I think the moment for me was probably towards the end of last year. When we launched a greater number of these iShares ETFs back towards the end of 2018, I'd imagine that this was a really good long-term growth project that would pay back many, many, many years from now. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really surprised me was the scale of the latent demand 
and just the excitement and enthusiasm amongst all types of our clients, not just sustainable enthusiasts, but all types of our clients all around the world, I would say just really surprised me. Whether it was giving a speech in Tokyo, whether it was talking to a wealth advisor in the United States, whether it was speaking with an institutional investor in Germany, the degree of interest and enthusiasm around this really surprised me to the upside. And so I think we're just at the very early stages of this, that it isn't five years out or 10 years out. It's like last week. Right. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how that unfolds over the course of the rest of this already extremely unusual year. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Salim. It's been a total pleasure talking to you. Yeah, of course. It's great to talk to you, MC. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. 230 the material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. 
For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock, Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock, Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.